Ephesians, uh, my, my attention is drawn here primarily because of this phrase or this notion that Paul gives at the end of uh, verse 24, or I should say in verse 24, and really encompassing the entire section here, of putting on the new man. As I've spent some time praying and thinking through uh, just in my own personal life, time out of the pulpit this past couple weeks, and just sort of spending time with the Lord, and just asking the Lord in my own life for grace and help to uh, launch into a new year and into the coming months and years in redoubling my efforts towards godliness, towards holiness, and just asking the Lord to help me grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking through, as a church, the challenges or the opportunities we have to think about how to do that together. And so I wanted to talk to you uh, today and in the uh, coming weeks about putting on the new life in the new year about thinking uh, in our own lives how to respond to the grace of God, how to respond to the doctrines of grace, how to respond to the truth that we hear so faithfully taught in our Sunday schools and faithfully taught by our elders here at this church and faithfully studied in our own studies and wherever it might be, how to respond and how we ought to respond to those wonderful truths. This chapter... uh, you may know as really a culmination of, of a, a look at the grace of God in the opening chapters of this book. Paul begins with a celebration of the praise of the glorious grace of God back in chapter 1, verse 6. And one of the, one of the most concentrated looks at God's grace from eternity past all the way uh, till the consummation of the ages, as Paul talks about in verse 11 of chapter 1, when Christ sums up all things in Himself in the end, He takes us on a comprehensive look at God's grace in our life from foreknowledge and predestination through redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation and all of those glorious truths And even as you come into chapter 2, he helps us to understand that not only have we been saved by grace, that is to say, not only is grace a moment uh, in our experience, but even in our experience, grace is a process. Because not only have we been saved by grace, but he tells us in verse 10 of chapter 2, that along with electing us before the foundations of the world, God prepared good works for us to walk in before the foundation of the world. So as we read in chapter 1, God predestined us to be uh, conformed to the image of His holiness. We read in chapter 2 that God predestined the works that we're to walk in. And when you come to chapter 3, the celebration of grace continues when Paul tells us that God gives us the power and the grace to walk in those works. He gives us, he says, the power to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or imagine. And so it's just a full sweep of grace all the way through the first three chapters before you come to verse 1 of chapter 4 where Paul then 
pivots and turns it now to application in our life when he tells us, as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, he urges us to walk now worthy, uh, in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. In other words, he says there's a proper response to all this doctrine. There's a proper response to all this grace. There's a proper walk that's worthy of all this stuff that God has given to us. That walk is, is fulfilled, or that walk is worked out, I should say, in this process. It involves, as he says in verses 11 through 16, faithfully sitting under the teaching of God's Word as elders and pastors and apostles and evangelists all teach the Word faithfully, he says in verse 12, equipping the saints with the Word of God so that the saints in turn are built up for the work of the ministry and then in turn build up one another as the body of Christ until ultimately, verse 13, we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, this grace is to be operative in our lives, not only at the moment of our salvation, the moment of our repentance, but operative within the, 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 the life of the church, within the teaching of God's Word, within the ministry of the saints together, so that we're constantly progressing in our grace to the point that we all reach maturity, to the point that we all reach fullness in the likeness of Christ. To the point, he says in verse 14, we're no, no longer tossed here and there, back and forth, whether spiritually or emotionally or mentally or whatever it might be, like children just tossed here and there on the roller coaster of life. He wants us to reach stability, maturity, spiritual manhood, as it were, under the grace of God. Now, with that paradigm laid out, Paul begins to, if you will, deepen our understanding of this process in verse 17. And he does it with a contrast, or really a series of contrasts. A contrast with an old way of life and a new life. An old way, which he says, is like the Gentiles or like the unbelievers, verse 17, who are futile in their minds, they're darkened in their understanding whose lives are alienated from God and whose hearts are calloused against Him. And this is the contrast that Paul's setting up for us, a contrast between that kind of life and the new life that we have in Christ. And what he's presenting for us in verse 17 is the danger that somehow, some way, we would walk unworthily of this grace. Or to say it in a different way, that we would walk in a way that still conforms, still resembles, still gives the appearance of the old life. That we would walk in a way that looks alienated from God, that looks like it's still darkened in its understanding, that you and I might still walk in a way that appears to be hardened in our heart against God. You see, this is the call. This is what really, this is really what everything has worked up to at this point in Ephesians. Paul's call in our life 
that we no longer walk that way, but instead we walk according to Christ. That we, as he begins to say in verse 22, having learned Christ, would put on Christ. Or as he says in verse 22 and 23 and 24, that we would in one hand put off the old self, which, is, uh, which belongs to that former manner of life. In verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And in verse 24, we would put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. And so what I want to invite us to do today and in the coming weeks is to refresh our minds and our hearts to think through this worthy response, this worthy walk to the grace of God that we've learned, to think through what it looks like to put off that old self and to put on the new self, to think through what it means to not have a life characterized by calloused hearts, darkened understanding, alienation from the life of God, and to put on a heart and a life that's being continually renewed and continually conformed to who God is. Now, Paul doesn't just leave it at the area of principle. He, he gets it very specific for us as he lays out, or I should say applies this in four specific areas in verses 25 through 32. In the area of honesty and dishonesty, in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the area of deceit, or excuse me, of, uh, of uh, theft and generosity, and in the area of anger and self-control, in the area of malicious or corrupt speech versus edifying speech. He says this is what we're supposed to be putting on instead of Instead of being conformed to the old life, William Arnott, a Puritan preacher, describes this process in this way. He says, quote, the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has not, but that one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his dreaded sins. What Paul's calling for us to do here then is to be renewed in our minds, to be renewed in our dread of sins, to be renewed in our participation with a reconciled God against our sins. You know, I was sort of thinking about it this week, like a, like a lawn, like redoing your lawn. I did this one time in my own lawn. I, I basically completely scraped all of my grass away, tilled up the soil, brought in all this brand new, lovely sod, planted it down and had this wonderful lawn that I was able to gaze out and just enjoy for a while until what always happens, right? Weeds on my lovely, pristine lawn. And you you wonder how in the world, I mean, we scraped everything away. We tilled up all that soil. We laid down brand new, fresh, pristine sod. How in the world now, just a few months later, am I beginning to see weeds springing up in this lovely lawn? Well, it's because some weeds are simply just deep-rooted. 
I mean, you can scrape them off at the top, but they're still going to penetrate through because their roots have gone so deep. Or in some cases, they sort of blown in from the neighbors, right? And so there's no such thing as a, as a lawn that you just sort of plant and just enjoy and do nothing. You understand that in order to enjoy that lovely lawn, it takes not only continual uh, fertilization and continual watering, but it also takes continual work of weeding out those deep-rooted uh, issues. And the same with our life. We have to understand that when we come to know Christ, He completely wipes away the old life. He completely grants us new life in Christ. But at the same time, there's a continual process of weeding out those old stubborn habits of nourishing that new life with the Word of God and by the Spirit in prayer and a constant uh, work of, of uh, pulling up those old habits and, and, and putting on the new, the new self which is in the likeness of God. Well, that's what Paul calls us to here and he calls it in four specific examples that we want to take time to consider in the coming weeks. Beginning... First of all, in verse 25, when he sets before us the contrast or the example of falsehood and truth, he says we need to put on, or I should say, put aside falsehood or having laid aside falsehood. Each one of you is to speak truth, he says, with his neighbor. Setting aside falsehood, speak truth with your neighbor. This is the contrast he wants them to understand with the old life and the new life, a new life which is governed by honesty just as the old life was governed by dishonesty. You might think, well, I mean, I mean, I don't know if I would say my old life was governed by dishonesty. Well, Paul's not suggesting that each one of us were all equally prone to dishonesty and deception in the same way. He understood as well as we should that by the different factors of our upbringing and uh, uh, the society pressures that we are in, some of us are, are governed or, or still constrained to honesty. But the reality is that the old life, that humankind in its flesh is naturally inclined to deception to exaggeration, to flattery, and to excuse-making. This is what characterizes the old life. This is what characterizes the flesh. And if you don't, have to, if you don't believe that here just by reading the contrast from verses 17 through 24, you could go into other passages of Scripture where, for example, Psalm 58.3 says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. This is the natural inclination of mankind. From the very beginning, when they're able to enunciate speech, their natural inclination is to lie. Let me just ask any parent in the room, right? Something goes missing in the house, something's broken, and you're trying to find out who did it. And what's the answer? She did. He did. Or whatever it might be, right? I mean, this is not learned behavior. This is the natural inclination of the heart. And so 
the biblical testimony gives it to us, our own personal experience gives it to us, or if you didn't believe that, you could just take note of a number of surveys that have been done. Like, for example, in 2008, a group of children observed over a period of weeks found that on average, a four-year-old tells a lie every two hours. And it doesn't get any better when they get older because a six-year-old we're told, tells a lie every hour and a half. I mean, these are unprovoked, unsolicited. Just the inclination of their nature. As you get older, the evidence stands true. A study among teenagers in 2002 found that only 9% of them believed that it's wrong to lie. 71% admitted to lying on their schoolwork within the past year. Or even among adults, even among those who claim to be born-again believers, research has shown that 70% of self-professed Christians believe it's justifiable to lie. Whether it's social surveys like this, whether it's personal experience in your own home, whether it's the clear testimony of Scripture, you can't escape the reality that deception is the natural inclination of our flesh, that we go astray from the womb speaking lies, and that there's a natural tendency from our flesh to want to exaggerate, to want to shade the truth, to want to conceal to want to misrepresent, flatter, insinuate, or whatever it may be, to deceive in some way. That's not what people want to hear today. They don't want to be judged simply by such a strict standard. The world today wants you to believe that it really doesn't matter specifically what your words say, it really is only a matter of your heart. I mean, really, all we should be concerned about is your motive, your end, not your means. That you really, you really need to be concerned not with, with whether or not someone has technically told a lie. What you really need to be concerned about is the intent of their heart. That's the society standard. But what Paul's telling us here is that can't be our standard. We cannot be given to falsehood. Why? Because verse 24. Because we're to be conformed to the likeness of God. And when it comes to God, the scripture is utterly clear. He cannot lie. Titus 1, 2. Or in another statement in Hebrews 6, it says, It is impossible for God to lie. Augustine wrote a treatise on lying in the early church, and he framed it up this way. He says, When I, when I frame in my mind's eye the beauty and the perfection of God's character, I cannot be called away from this, so that I am compelled to truthfulness. In other words, this is, this is the ultimate deciding factor 
for Augustine, for every believer, when it comes to the issue of truthfulness and deception, that you and I are compelled to truthfulness because we're compelled to the image of God first and foremost. And to give ourselves to any form of lying, to any form of exaggeration, to any form of excuse making, to any form of deception at all, is to give ourselves to a conformity to a pattern of life that is not Him. Not only that, it is to give ourselves over to a rebellion that was initiated in the Garden of Eden. You see, this was really at the core of Satan's strategy. It was at the core of Satan's strategy to hoist, uh, foist, I should say, upon man a perception or a falsehood that's different from what God ordained. It was, it was uh, Satan in the Garden of Eden, you remember, who says, has God not said you may eat of any tree in the Garden of Eden? It's not a direct lie. It's an insinuation. You have the right to eat whatever you want. He followed that up with an outright lie. That God said this, restricting a, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, only because He knows that when you do so, you'll be like Him. That's also a partial truth. Taking words that God Himself had said and twisting them. And by doing all that, Satan launched a strategy to alter perception in the minds of Adam and Eve different from the stated reality as God had ordained it. And guess what? Every time you lie, you join ranks together with Satan to do just the same thing. You lie, you exaggerate, you insinuate, or whatever you might do, you're doing it in order to alter the perception of other people. Although you cannot alter reality as God has ordained it. This is what the core of really lying and deception is all about. This is really the way you could summarize all deception. It is a refusal to accept and submit to what God says about your life. I mean, at the core of every lie is a refusal to submit to His authority and His sovereignty over you. One of those two things. So, for example, you, you, encounter, you encounter some sort of confrontation, some sort of uh, threat of exposure of some sin that you committed... And rather than owning up to the reality that you are, first of all, a sinner, and second of all, a failure, rather than just owning up to that, what do you do? You make excuses, you lie, you exaggerate, in order to bypass the clear uh, testimony of your life against the law of God, against the holiness of God. You lie because you don't want to accept God's verdict against you as a sinner. Or even if it's outside the realm of clear sin, it might be an area of weakness. It might be some inadequacy in your life. It might be a lack of giftedness, a lack of accomplishment, a lack of, of uh, whatever it might be, a weakness in your own, a deficiency in your own skill set. 
and you don't like it. You don't like to admit what you haven't achieved, what you cannot do, what you weren't faithful to, or whatever it might be. And so when someone queries you about it, what do you do? You exaggerate, you embellish, you do all these things because you don't simply want to accept the weaknesses of who you are and the failures of your own life. All of that is taking your place right alongside Satan in rejecting the sovereign and authoritative hand of God. Because the reality is God is the one who has made you. With all of your weaknesses, with all your frailties, that God is the one who is sovereign over your circumstances, and that God is the one who has declared your sins to be sins. And every time you lie, you're trying to escape one of those realities. We don't want to deal with the deficiencies, as I said, in our own character. We don't want to acknowledge our own weaknesses, so we fabricate stories to try to cover them up. We don't want to acknowledge what we did or did not do. We don't want to acknowledge what we can and cannot accomplish. And so lest people see who we truly are, we try to affect their perception of reality. But this is the truth. No matter how much you fabricate, no matter how much you embellish, you haven't changed anything about what's real. You haven't changed anything about the deficiencies in your character. You haven't changed anything about the weaknesses in your flesh. You haven't changed anything about the things that you've done. Not only that, is those weaknesses, because they are a reality, they will surface again. They will show themselves in time. Your character will be demonstrated. Your weaknesses will surface. This is why Proverbs twelve nineteen says this. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. What the, what the, the, the writer of Proverbs is saying there is that you might lie, and for a moment is, think that you've escaped your problem, but regardless of what you believe or what you might lead others to believe, after your lie is finished, you are still faced with the same reality of who you are and the way that you behave or the sin that's in your life, no matter what your lie might have been. You might have affected the way people perceive you, but you've not changed the reality of who you are. You might lie about something that you have done, but you haven't dealt with the sinful behavior that's in your heart and life. You might escape notice for a time, but the reality is you have a sinful pattern that will surface again if it isn't met with accountability. And so the truth is that whatever we have covered up is forever there, just waiting to be unearthed, waiting to be discovered, or waiting to be confessed. Truthful lips, on the other hand, they don't have to worry about such future things because they've brought it all to the surface. That's why they are established forever. That's why they never have to change 
That's why there's never a need to go back and, and qualify what you said before or change details of what you said or add additional cover-ups or come up with additional lies. That's why there's no need to ever change what was previously said because those truthful statements will always stand up under scrutiny when they're uncovered because they simply represent reality. So these, these are sort of the macro pictures of what lying is according to Scripture. Macro picture of what it is according to the old manner of life. But Paul wants us to focus in on one particular consequence of lying here in verse 25. Not just the reality that, that uh, the, this is contrary to God's nature. Not just the reality that, that this is sort of rebellion against Him. But he wants us to think about the impact that it has on other people. When he says there in verse 25 that we are to lay aside falsehood and speak truth, he says we're to do it because we are members of one another. They're referring particularly to the body of Christ. Everything he's said throughout this chapter about members, he said about members in the body of Christ. And he just wants us to contemplate the detrimental impact it will have on our relationships if we, in an unguarded way, give ourselves over to deception. Because the reality is, relationships are built on trust, right? Relationships are built on trust. And you could imagine within a physical body, if the various members of the body began to send confusing or false information to one another. If, for example, the optical nerve were, were to send an impulse to the brain, but then the brain send a miscommunication or a falsehood to the feet. I mean, you can imagine the disaster that would happen in your physical body if the various members of the body were sending false information to one another. In the same way, Paul's telling us that within the body of Christ, if we don't have trust, if we don't have honesty amongst ourselves, then the relationships, the cohesiveness of the body is undermined and the body is destroyed. Because lies destroy trust. And once trust is gone, relationships are very difficult to restore. You ask anyone who's been through the breakup of a marriage in cases of infidelity, it's possible by the grace of God to grant forgiveness, and forgiveness comes in a moment. But trust is a different matter. Trust takes time to rebuild, a long time to rebuild. Thankfully, by the grace of God, working in the hearts of men and women He's able to do that. He's able to take marriages that have been destroyed by mistrust and rebuild them as grace works in the hearts of both people, but it's not an overnight process. And the sad thing is that mistrust can creep in so subtly and seemingly so quickly. It begins with little things, small compromises along the way, little insignificant matters of communication. It begins with exaggeration or excuse-making, or lies for the sake of convenience. 
And before you realize it, you begin to develop a pattern. And that pattern becomes more and more visible until your credibility is undermined and your relationship begins to be unraveled. Ralph Keyes comments on this in the modern era, which he wrote a book called The Post-Truth Era, where he really outlines the pervasive nature of deception in modern society. And in that book, he kind of talks about this dynamic of deception eroding trust and then that, 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 that mistrust just perpetuating deception. He says, quote, not feeling connected to others makes it easier to lie, which in turn makes it harder to reconnect. Eroded communities foster dishonesty. Dishonesty contributes to further erosion of communities. As communal bonds wither, unfettered self-interest is unleashed, end quote. In other words, the end result of those who fall prey to the sin of lying is that they find themselves being isolated from other people. Because to get too close to someone is to run the risk of being exposed. And yet, to be isolated from other people is simply to be encouraged to fabricate more stories. And it just becomes a cycle. A cycle in your life where you begin to settle for an abundance of shallow relationships rather than for a few meaningful relationships. You make friends easily because of your deception, but you lose them just as easily to protect your world of falsehood. It's not to say that liars don't desire deep relationships, but they know that there are dangers to get too close to anyone, to let anyone too much into their life. And so they find themselves not only trapped in a, uh, a sin of deceit, but trapped often in a world of superficiality and a world of loneliness. In their minds, probably yearning for someone to open up to them. And in many cases, or in some cases with me, I find liars blaming everyone else for not opening up to them, when in reality, they're the ones who keep or must keep everyone at arm's length. And so these are the consequences of, of a, a lying relationship. Paul says here it's, it's the detrimental impact amongst ourselves as members in a community, amongst yourselves as members of a family, as you have to drift more and more into the superficiality of masked relationships. It isn't just that, though. Because that isolation leads to another consequence, which is moral degradation. That is to say that once you become comfortable with lying, once you begin to be adept at it, you prepare yourself for an onslaught of temptation. Because whenever you are now confronted about anything, you can just lie to get out of it. And so you begin to lower your guard against temptation, believing that you'll never be caught, that there will never be consequences. 
Charles Spurgeon says, when a heart is untruthful, when honesty has gone from it, it is prepared to be the seed plot of every evil thing. You've just tilled the soil in your heart for temptation, for Satan to plant whatever he wants there. As a matter of fact, look with me at the book of Jeremiah, because Jeremiah spells this out in his own day. In Jeremiah chapter 9, he had lamented earlier in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, how he couldn't find a single person in his society who spoke the truth. He was literally in a nation of liars, of deceivers, of exaggerators, of fabricators. And so he laments in verse 3 of Jeremiah 9 the situation that he's in. He says of his, of his people, he said, they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil. And they do not know me, declares the Lord. Everyone, he says, beware of your neighbor in verse 4. Put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver. Every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They've talked their tongues to lie, he says, in that next phrase. This is the world that he says he lives in. But I want to draw your attention there to verse 3. Because he says, as this was happening, that the people around him proceeded from evil to evil. This is one of the most one of the most grievous consequences in the life of a person who's taught their tongue and their heart to lie. They have removed one of the greatest safeguards in their life against sin. Because now whenever they are confronted about anything, they just lie to get out of it. And they no longer fear any temptation. So now you can look at pornography. Now you can cheat on your expense account. Now you can get away with your laziness, your unfaithfulness. Now you can get away with all of your secret schemes because whenever someone comes and calls you to account, you just distort the truth because you've become so adept at lying. And what you find is the acceleration of the plunge of your life into moral degradation as your life begins to unravel. And you try to paint a picture to everyone that it's not. In your mind, you may even not even begin to feel guilt anymore for these sins. You're plunging further and further into all of these degrading behaviors, and yet you don't even feel the guilt because as 1 Timothy 4, 2 says, you've seared your conscience with the lies of hypocrisy. Your conscience, in other words, is like burned skin. It doesn't even have sensitivity anymore to the sins that you're participating in so that you are you are plunging further and further into this degrading life. 
This is the consequence of this kind of deception. It doesn't look anything like the life of Christ. It takes its place alongside the master deceiver against and, and in rebellion against God. It destroys the relationships around you and leads to the superficial existence of your life. It plunges you into further degradation. And maybe worse yet, it subjects you to self-deception. I mean, this is probably the greatest consequence. Because what Paul's presenting here in Ephesians chapter 4, what he's presenting is a contrast. A contrast between two different lives. One of them, which is by the grace of God, conformed to the image of Christ. And another, he says, which is alienated from God, which is darkened in its understanding. And he says, futile in its way of life and calloused in its heart. It's the life of an unbeliever. And this is the real, this is the real tragedy of a deceived life. A deceiver, I should say, is a deceived life. Is the fact that you have covered up so much and you've presented the best picture you could to so many people, you actually begin to believe what you're trying to convince everyone else about. That you're okay spiritually. That you're okay in your life. That you'll manage just fine. That your weaknesses and your sins and your frailties and your failures will never catch up to you. Well, listen, the the tragedy is people who go through their life, their entire life, that way, will face a reckoning, a day of truth. When everything hidden will be exposed. And the scripture says that outside of heaven will be not only the murderers and the adulterers and the malicious, but it will be the liars. Three times in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21.8, Revelation 21.27, Revelation 22.14, three times it describes heaven. In all three cases, it describes those who are left out. And in all three cases, those left out are the liars. This is the real threat. If you've given your life over to deception, the real threat is that you've deceived yourself, possibly. You've never come to grips with the unregenerate nature of your heart. You've never come to grips with the waywardness of your life. You've never come to grips with the alienation that you have from God. You have deceived others. You've covered up. You've put on a front. And yet the scripture calls you back to a verdict. A verdict that God has declared against you. That you are a sinner. That you are subject to his judgment. That you are weak, you are frail, you are a failure, that you are inadequate in so many ways. And the pathway of God is to accept His verdict. 
to submit to who He says you are. To yield to His sovereignty and to His authority. To confess your sins. To be renewed in your understanding of what those sins are. And to put on the new self which is made in the likeness of God. To put on truth. To begin to speak always in accordance with the declaration of God. To always speak in accordance with the reality of who you are. And so you confess, I'm a sinner. You confess, I've deceived. You confess, I've done all these things, even though I've denied them in the past. And you're standing alongside God in His declaration of who you are. You're making that declaration before others. You're owning up to the reality that you're a sinner. You're owning up to the reality that you're a failure. And the reality that you're weak. Because this is the reality God sees. The good news is, when you own up to that, the grace of God is there to cover it. Because each one of us, every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has lied. Every one of us has failed. And every one of us who know Christ stand under His grace to cover all those things. The pathway that Paul calls us to here, not just for this day and not just for this year, but for all of our life, is to lay aside that old life, corrupted with all of those deceitful desires, corrupted by falsehood, and to begin to speak reality. To tell people who we are, to tell people how we failed, so that we can also tell people about the grace of God in our life. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're grateful this morning for the call that comes to us by your word to a faithful and a true confession of the deceitfulness of sin, but also of the grace of our Savior. Lord, to rejoice in your grace is not only to rejoice in the fact that we've been elected, that we've been redeemed, that we've been forgiven, but to rejoice in your grace and the glory of it is to put it always in contrast to the weakness of who we are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us all to drop the pretense, to drop the schemes and the exaggerations, to drop the deceptions, and to confess freely before you as we do before others the weakness of who we are, the sinful heart and flesh that we deal with, and the grace of God that we continually rely on. Help us to do that, Lord, because we not only want to be conformed to the image of you, not only want to submit forever to your authority in our life, but Lord, we want to have the blessings of truthful lips that stand forever. The pathway that you've called us to, the pathway of grace and truth and blessing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.